Welcome to The Passion Factor, pursuing a career in human rights in conjunction with Human Rights Pulse. My name is Vicky Praise. I'm very excited to welcome Clive Baldwin to the show. Clive is British and currently works as a senior legal advisor at Human Rights Watch. His area of focus includes the Middle East, North and West Africa and discrimination law. I think it's fair to say that Clive has had an exceptionally interesting and varied career in the human rights sector. Prior to joining Human Rights Watch, Clive was a practicing lawyer in London for the human rights law firm Bindman and Partners, and also worked on European litigation at the Air Centre. His career has taken him to Kosovo, where he worked for the OSCE mission and has served as head of advocacy for minority rights group. We will, I'm sure, hear more about Clive's own journey Clive has a degree in international history and politics from the University of Leeds, a master's in international relations from the Woodrow Wilson School at Princeton University and studied law at City University. Clive, welcome to The Passion Factor, pursuing a career in human rights. It's great to have you here. Hi, Vicky, and delighted to be here. So the first question that I ask all my my guests is, where did did it all start for you? What motivated you to work in the human rights field? Oh, yeah, sometimes I (laughs) don't really remember. And I know that it's probably like some of us, around the age of 15, 16, I started to have a sense of what was going on in the world and heard about Amnesty International. But I'm not from a background where I know anything about the international world or... Um, or law, and I'm from a place called Lincolnshire, which is one of the most remote rural parts of England. It's a very small village, and I did not have any family financial connections. So at the age of about 16 or 17 in my school, you could take a test as to what job would be good for you when you were choosing universities. I think law was number one and number two, along with actor. And I remember thinking, I would never want to be a lawyer. I did a history degree, as you mentioned, in politics in Leeds in England, didn't know what to do, so I went and did a master's in the US in Princeton. That was two years. My second year, though, a professor there, Richard Falk, was teaching human rights and international law. And that's where I discovered it. And what really I remember getting me at the time is it wasn't just that sense of right or wrong. It was that human rights seemed to give you a frame of focus as to what to do and then was lots of people said, you don't have to be a lawyer to do human rights work, but it helps. And I was still only in my early 20s and thought, okay, maybe I'll just go and get a law qualification in order to do international human rights work. Excellent. And, and I think we've all had those moments when, yeah, law seems to be the, the, the right way forward. And it sets the framework and, and we can hopefully bring change. I, in the in the bio, I kind of gave a, a very short potted history about your own career, but can perhaps you can expand on what has been your own career path to date and uh, to, to the point where you are now at Human Rights Watch? Yeah, when I it's been a, some time now since I was doing a job interview, but it used to <laughs> pretend that all my career was thought out and um, made sense. I think I was once given a talk in. Um, the US and the Dean of the Law School presented me as if my whole career had made sense and I had to say, no, it doesn't. It was <laughs> just what jobs seemed available at the time. As I said, I didn't know anything about this profession. I came back to London and studied law from the US because of financial reasons. 
I thought at that time that defending human rights meant being a criminal defence barrister, really, because that's what I would see on television. I spent some time in the bar, found extraordinary off-putting. So I became a solicitor, but made, um, which seemed more at home to me. And eventually I found that was what suit, had suited me because it was dealing with clients and individuals directly. At the time, they were thinking I made a hundred applications for training contract things. This is back in the 1990s. There was another recession then. I made a hundred applications for training contracts and only got one interview. But that one interview was with the law firm I most wanted to work for called Bindman's, who were the then and still are many one of the most famous human rights law firms. So I got that job. My first six months was doing crime, which I thought I wanted to do, criminal defense work. Didn't like it. And then I came back for the second six months of a say, two-year training contract and loved it. It was doing human rights work. It was employment lawyers because I think a lot of civil claims are about solving people's problems. Someone comes to you into your office with a problem. They're being discriminated against at work. They're being treated unlawfully at work. And if it's a legal issue, you can help them. And that I really, really liked. So when I qualified as a lawyer, I stayed on environments for a year doing housing, mental health, again, Lots of different types of work, but one that really stood out for me when <clears throat> thinking about human rights law, which I know nothing about before, was the rights of people with mental disabilities. And something my law firm did, but that meant there's a lot here of prisoners being locked up and even immigration detainees. We don't still hear very much about people with mental health problems being locked up for that reason in hospitals. It became and still is a real passion for me, motivation where the law can help some people. I had to make a decision, do I stay in the legal profession, practicing domestically, thinking, asking, do you want to go into politics or go and do the international work I originally wanted to do? I started to see, that for me, that, yes, there was a lot, I was doing a lot of housing law, people being evicted and mental health law. I thought, it's the same issues again and again. You can help them, but there's an underlying problem. And I could either go into politics and try to change that or go and do international work. That's what I did, because at that time, there'd just been a war in Kosovo in Southeast Europe, and the United Nations was governing it through the UK government. They needed people to go and work there. So I went out and did and worked there without clues to what to do. And then realised everyone out there had no clue. It was in some ways like international colonialism. <laughs> I could talk about that for a long time, but I ended up creating a section on help with a few other people on human rights, monitoring, rule of law, creation, building a justice system. So we spent some years working on that and not entirely sure we succeeded. I mean, we didn't succeed on many things there, but it was an extraordinary experience that time in Kosovo. And some of the friends there I still work with for the years since in international work. But there's a lot you could have learned, especially it's mainly very interested ever since in colonialism, because that was colonialism. Well-meaning, probably for most people, but still running someone else's country for them. Um, most people stayed six months at that time because it was very intense. I stayed two and a half years. I was pretty much burnt out by the end because it was very intense. You were working all the time. There was still something of a conflict going on. But then a job was offered, was being advertised at Minority Rights Group, an international NGO, and it was to set up litigation, international litigation, and head their advocacy work globally. Actually, though, there's not many jobs like that. 
Um, I was by then who was I guess in my early thirties um, doing international human rights litigation. Um, particularly that part of it, it was a lot more. It was media. It was doing advocacy at the UN and elsewhere, and on behalf of minorities and indigenous peoples. And in the end, we built this system of litigating with some extraordinary people, but on on a broader issue, how to bring about change, work with communities, work with some amazing people from different parts of the world. What I found very interesting, which we'd also done in Kosovo actually, was renew and review our work from the bottom up. And that was to say, what works? What do we, not look at what we've always done, but what we, do we want to achieve? I mean, bring about change, improve people's lives, protect their rights. A whole combination of things, which some of the things, some things work once and never work again. You may have your moments when the right people in power. Some things take many years. I think someone writing about Amnesty International Court said it was like water on stone, that the water drips away at a stone and then appearing not to change anything. But after some years, suddenly you realise it's worn away that stone. Um, so that's been a big issue. Um, after five years there, at that time, I still think you need something new. And <clears throat> I then joined Human Rights Watch in New York as senior legal advisor, which is working on issues I was almost um, I've ended up working on the Middle East and Africa, especially back in the UK, back in Southeast Europe, and issues around equality. The reason I've stayed there 12, 13 years now nearly um, is because there's a variety, because of the impact. So there's been some very good moments there, but I've also been working for some years there internally um, on building up the first time we've been addressing internally stress and resilience, so stress in human rights workers and how to build resilience. And that's been a different type of work, but a vital piece of work. And very recently, um, we started to look at um, how the human rights profession is dealing with particularly the colonial legacy globally and issues around racism. So that's a very potted history of me. <laughs> Absolutely, um, and it shows that the, the breadth and, and the depth of, of where your work has taken you and the issues that you've covered. And, and I think I share with you that, that moment also, because I qualified as a lawyer myself in a small firm in London, but knew that the international human rights work is where I wanted to go. And having that kind of threshold moment, is it now or when, when do, do you actually take that leap of faith and do it? The sort of first part of, of, of what I wanted to kind of ask you about was, for those people who are listening and it's students and, and young professionals is working and, and breaking into the sector. And we, we know how, how difficult and, and tough that can be. And um, a question around sort of further study, because for some positions in the human rights sector, not for all, certainly um, a master's degree of, of some description is, is, is a norm now. We're seeing that more. And I would really love to get your, your thoughts on that. A, do you, do you think a master's is required for the sector? And if so, you know, at what point in someone's career or early career should they think about taking that, given the fact that there's an expense attached to it, there's a time attached to it? So then what are your thoughts on, on further study sort of generally? No, it's a very good question, very important one. I think you're right that master's at least are very much becoming a requirement. It helps a lot, but I would always, I say, maybe I can say that now because of the decisions I took, but in the end, what you'll look back on 10 years after doing it is what did you actually gain yourself 
from that master's and that may vary. <clears throat> Ideally, I would say, especially if you're doing a practical career-focused master's, it would be better to go out and get some career work. But I didn't do that because for me, the decision was at age, I did a history and politics degree. I didn't know what I wanted to do at all in England. There was a recession on, there were very few jobs. Then the only option seemed to be to do a master's. So it wasn't thought out. <clears throat> and it was, as I said just now, it was only in Princeton that I actually discovered human rights. And other things that people have got from um, master's degrees, of course, is the other the, um, people they work with, they study with, camaraderie, the connections, the professors and others. Afterwards, after some time, I often say, if, I, if it had been an ideal world, I would have taken some time out. If I had known I was, wanted to work in human rights law, I would have got some work and then I might have done a very much focused professional course. And sort of, I suppose, closely aligned to that, sort of thinking about those people who might want to work in the sector is um, what skills and qualities do you think you need to work in the human rights field? Because it's tough, it's difficult, and we, we can talk about that later. But generally, sort of the, the skills and qualities and from your, from your own journey. I think in the end, if I look back and say what helps, first of all, is to, in the, is to know why you want to do it. And in something like human rights, it's about um, what do you believe in? And that can change. So I would say to for a career in this, which has its um, stresses, which has its disasters, which has its horrors that you see, but also has its rewards, that is the essential basis, is knowing what you believe in and why. And also, I mean, it's a groundwork, but also then be able to adapt to how the world changes, how you see changes and what you see that comes out. Of course, languages and a sense of um, how other countries work. Um, if I would say anything, it's like known languages and, and you go to do international work and you know exactly areas of the world you want to work on and are fascinated by no other languages. If you don't, then as good as language as any or the, any of the official languages of the UN, they're there because they're some of the most widely spoken languages. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think well, a couple of things to pick up there about the languages. I, I would certainly agree with you on that point. It, it absolutely opens up a lot of opportunities for you. I mean, in my case, it was French and, and that helped me um, working with the Council of Europe in Strasbourg for a couple of years. And, and so, you know, having a very good level um, of, of languages will, will open up doors for you. A lot of students and young professionals who I help and support and mentor are often coming to me for advice general advice about their CVs and resume and, and, and what should it include and how much should I put down there and things. And, and I suppose you've seen many, many sort of CVs cross your path um, in your career there. What, what to you are the kind of important things to have on, on there, given that these are, are young people who, who've just starting out? Yeah, I think the one point I would say, which is perhaps sounds obvious, but isn't always, is... <laughs> In these days, always make sure your CV, your resume and your letter matches the job. Um, people want, you know, we want to get the best people for that job. And it's, I mean, and that can be quite difficult as well. The recruiter should think about what this job is and what they want from it and what are the key things. So normally it should say this is essential elements of a job. Um, so they, then you try to meet that. But one thing I'd say also, of course, if a job has very specific requirements like 
so many years. That may be an indication, but there are plenty of people who apply for a job when it says five years experience and may only have three or two, or however you want to define it. The one interview I got for a lot traineeship in a law firm, they wanted someone who wasn't me, wanted someone a lot more experienced. But I remember writing them a letter to say the experience I've had, although it's short, is meaningful work doing the death penalty work, which it was. Mm-hmm. So it's, but it's really that thing of matching what you have. So also be aware of what people are looking for. Again, working for an American uh, organization, it's they very much want sort of um, dynamism, a letter which sounds very enthusiastic and saying how good you are. We, uh, those of us who aren't uh, American, I think, sharing that a lot of cultures and different backgrounds, that's not considered good for. You don't promote yourself that way. But again, if you're applying to an American organization, really do stress the good things you've done. It's going to be, though, very much about what's the job, showing what you've done. If you, Of course, we recognise people who are in their early 20s won't have a long list, but sometimes they do. And showing its relevance. Um, one thing I look for, just because it's my background, if I was recruiting research assistant, for example, in the past, it would be... Ex- would be wonderful, which we get rarely, is experience of different legal systems, because that's part of my work, is working different legal systems. But say someone who, who may say be qualified in a common law system like England or the US, but has experience with a civil law system like France or Algeria, Tunisia, uh, Lebanon, systems, and knows the difference between, so, or other way around if you're from a Lebanese qualified lawyer who's actually worked in and understands the US and understands the difference in those legal systems. That's good. And that you can get, I got that at university by doing a course in practical course in French law, including time in France. So I've seen a couple of people with those backgrounds and having done courses at university and those to me stood out, but that's something quite personal to me because my work is, if I was hiring legal researchers, it would be to work in different legal systems, but that is someone who shows they understand the difference between uh, those types of systems. Kind of know the job and, and, and look at the job carefully and then tailor your, your CV and, and, and cover letter accordingly. And, and sort of f- finally on this little sort of bit, bit of our chat, we know that networking is an important sort of factor in lots of different professions within the human rights world. And, and if you if you want um, your own sort of experience of, of networking um, alongside the, the job applications, where and how should young people be networking? Yeah, it was a word I was terrified of when I went to be a student in the US. Um, and me both. <laughs> And then they, when I was doing my master's in the US, they really stressed it. Um, and I have to say, to begin with, when I was a student, I found this is not just terrifying, but I found it, um, well, do I have to do that? Sounds terrible that you're just using people. But then they just told us to reach out to graduates. And that was one part of it, is getting some idea from people. But it's over the years, I would just say, I don't know, What's worked is being social. You get to see good people. They come over the years. They 
they can be very good. They can be very helpful. You just know them. And I mean, I'm not an academic. I don't go to many conferences, but once or twice they come up. And it's not the, to me, it's never the formal presentations that matter. Now you learn that doing advocacy, actually. It's the coffee breaks. You have coffee with people, you have lunch with people, you might have a drink out at the end of the day. Our world is, human rights world is small. There's the vast majority of people who are great and brilliant. I've just found over the years that um, meet as many people as possible, make the most of it. I'm recording this during lockdown, but I would always say spend less time in the office, spend less time on your computer, more time with people as much as possible, whether it's coffee, whether it's lunch, whether it's dinners. You learn from people that way. But it's being friendly. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more with you on, on all of those points there. It's just kind of being being open and receptive to people at all different sort of points. And, and, mm. and exactly right, it's those, not the formal meetings and things, but the parallel times um, at, at events where, where you kind of get the important information or you can talk to people and then share. Moving on to sort of life as, as a human rights professional, um, it would be great to hear from you about your typical day um, as, a, as a senior legal advisor at Human Rights Watch. And I realise that, as you say, we are recording this during lockdown, so it might not be your ordinary day, but, but share with us a little a, a bit, a bit about what a typical day is for you. Yeah, I, when I share my typical days, I'm afraid it can be not as glamorous as the life of a human rights lawyer is sometimes made out to be. Unfortunately, so much time is spent on a computer, as you can imagine. Oh, no phones or messages. I work for an international organization. So I, given it's a New York-based organization, my mornings are quieter, normally be responded to things we have to put out that day. I um, will normally be working on one or two larger reports. And in the past, I used to do a lot of something where I might get requested to media and interviews on that. So that may happen. I do that because I know the issue. It's not a job like being a domestic lawyer where you never really know what's going to happen. Um, and in the afternoon, we'll be on calls normally because the New York office is meeting. Um, and I, one thing I've learned though is also to try to really stop my working day at 6 p.m. Um, I didn't used to, but um, it's been something I've become much more committed to. So I really try to tell people at 5 p.m. anything more you need, I'll send out now. But um, yeah, it can be whatever the emergency situation is we're dealing with. Um, as I work on the Middle East, it, uh, there's often quite a few emergencies that day. Well, are we going to comment on something? And people ask me, what can we say? So the essential thing that I would do at hum in Human Rights Watch, which I actually did in Kosovo as well, was um, shape and help shape what we say. Everything we publish will go through me or one of my colleagues to say, is it part of human rights law? Is it is our legal argument correct, which is actually the basis of what we say? I'm not sure there's a typical day, but it's somewhat predictable, I think, in the type of work we'll get. Well, so it gives a, a flavour for, for people mm. thinking maybe this is an interesting path to take, what, what, what it actually looks like on on the ground and, and thinking back through your your really interesting and career path what 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 is the is the highlight or what might have been the highlight or highlights of, of your career to date given where you've worked and, and the issues that you that you've worked on there's been quite a few and it's both what might appear to be the highlight and then other things as well 
minority rights group we did to major cases. We didn't know they were going to be major when we started them, which changed the law in Africa and in Europe. One was on the right of an indigenous community in Kenya, the Endoroi, who had been kicked off their land in the 1970s by the Kenyan government. To some degree, that's a highlight. But similar reasons in Bosnia, this, um, and we had a case in Bosnia-Herzegovina where the um, system set up by international experts after the civil war in the 1990s is one that discriminates against smaller groups, this entrenched discrimination, and real this was discrimination. So those are major days, and I remember the days when we got the results. Um, but we won, but they, those were both 10 years ago, and neither of those has been properly implemented. So it's not, you know, it's not going to always happen. Um, that's what I say. We, to me, human rights law is about making a difference. So we have made a difference then, but it's not done yet. And so some of the days I also remember is someone whose house had been living in terrible conditions in social housing, um, damp, um, her daughter had asthma, uh, nothing was done. She kept complaining to the council, nothing happened. And then she came to lawyer and said, well, we'll go. Well, the council ignored us. And in the end, we got an order. They ignored that. And I sent a bailiff on to the director of housing in the local council saying, we're going to have you committed to prison for ignoring a court order in a few days. And because um, they were just so arrogant that they wouldn't um, respond to anything. So that service, suddenly, she, I remember her calling me and just saying, I don't know what happened, but they've come and repaired um, everything. Our house is just better. My daughter's better. And she told me this later. That um, So that was showing to me the power that you can do with the law is totally, it made me very angry as well because this should never have happened. They could have fixed this in an afternoon years before, but sometimes you need the law for that. Or I had a client, I was used to volunteer in my local law center in London when I was a trainee or just after being a student. And um, I was able just by in the evenings advise uh, one, one client came in when she was a, refugee from Djibouti in East Africa, living in London, and she'd been denied boarding by Air France in a very racist manner that made racist comments to her. But I just <clears throat> was able to give her guidance, but she represented herself. But in the end, she she's went and won her, her case against Air France, got the money and compensation, but for her, it was the recognition that mattered. And she was, again, so proud and grateful for what she'd done. And to me, that was again when I was very just started that this again shows how we can help people with the law. Again, it should have been necessary, but unfortunately it is. Absolutely. I mean it is those kind of really mean something to us at the beginning of our career. I think for me it was um helping a couple of clients gain asylum in the UK there here, mm. which was very challenging given the system that I was up against. But you know, and I remember those cases to, to this day. Um I wanted to sort of Finally, move on to, to something that you've alluded to quite a lot through the through our chat, and it's this around the sort of the challenges and the, the downsides of both of working in the human rights sector. That it is a very difficult world to work in. It's emotionally, physically very draining, as you've said there. Burnout and stress is a real issue for us as human rights professionals, and I think it's important that we 
impart that, that information to, to the young generation who are looking to start in this sector. And perhaps you could share more about the work that you've been doing at Human Rights Watch, but also what advice you would give in terms of the self-care aspect for those people starting out. Yeah, for sure. I think when I used to say to people close to me at the beginning, if I start to, to care too much about this meaning it, I bring my work home with me mentally, emotionally. I never take a break. I, um, I can't stop thinking about it. I never stop working about it. Then I, maybe that's time for me to stop. Or um, if I stop caring. But on the stress here, we don't know what's going to happen. Um, because of the type of work I've done, dear friends have been killed. And um, to name two of them, because they're two amazing people friend of mine from Kosovo, Fiona Watson, who was killed in a bombing in the UN in Baghdad in 2003 with the High Commission of Human Rights. Um, and one of the most amazing lawyers I knew from an minority rights group called Tahir Erci, who was um, a Turkish, so Kurdish from Turkey, lawyer who had brought his own cases, taught himself, um, brought his cases about his own torture to the European Court of Human Rights, and was one of the most modest people I knew. So, and he was assassinated um, a few years ago when reading a call in public for peace at the moment he was doing that in, um, in Turkey. But what, we've, what I've found and what we've now found in Human Rights Watch, we started our stress work, resilience work some years ago when um, New York University and Columbia University in New York City have started some work on stress in human rights workers. And that was eye-opening and fascinating because it was putting some more framework on what we all know and experience. And over the years, and I'm co-chair of our internal um, task force in Human Rights Watch on this, I think what we've learned is there's things like, it happens to anyone anywhere. I think the issues, the areas I find is, one is limit your working hours. There is the first human rights, global human rights movement probably, was it was the anti was it was about work, it was the anti-slavery movement, and then there was a campaign for an eight-hour working day a hundred years ago or more, which was won. Um, and people died for that struggle. And yet the human rights movement often people don't respect that. You have to live in the working hours, you have to mentally limit so you're not available all the time that you say, I can only do so many hours work a day. So if I sum up on that, I think I would just say, in the know yourself, know why you're doing this. I mean, if, this is that's a lifetime. We're always changing, always knowing ourselves. When you know why you're doing it, remember this is above all about the human. Um, including yourself and what, and what the humans do, what they can achieve, what they can't, what, how things affect them. Um, now, there's only a limited amount of work that can be done. So may that work, especially the time, as focused and effective as possible and meaningful. But we know things that go wrong and very wrong in the world. So we can't feel responsible for things we're not responsible for. And treat everyone decently, um, particularly yourself, or starting with yourself. It's about basic decency. Absolutely. I think that, that, that these are really important things to kind of keep with us when we are dealing with such difficult issues. Um, personally, I, I remember when I was at the Foreign Office and I was advising 
staff there on a, a chap in Algeria who um, died unfortunately on a hunger strike and still to this day it carry, I carry it with me. Was there more I could have done, I should have done to, to save that man's life? But, but we have to do, we have to take care of ourselves first exactly before we try to support others and, and it's, a, it's a difficult balance there. Do you have um, counsellors at Human Rights Watch people can go to, to if, if they're finding it very difficult, very hard? Yes, we do. That has again been something that's started, came out of the internal work we did on stress and resilience. We also find you need counselling or systems for everyone which works for them and taking into account people's culture, but each individual has different needs at different times in in terms of support, but um, their own background comes into that as well as to what works for them. So just drawing it to, to a sort of a conclusion, I suppose, you know, what final words do you have? I think what, what I will say always is I was just being amazingly lucky, um, but most lucky at all to have stumbled into this work, to this work in international human rights. I have found it, despite the moments, despite the terrible moments, it's been extraordinarily rewarding. It gives you a sense of achievement. It gives you a sense that you can put whatever skills you develop and learn to helping other people and perhaps helping yourself as well. So it's an amazing profession. I would also say, if you're committed to it, please don't be put off by the what some everyone will say to you when people say it's very difficult to get into it. You see the numbers of people applying. If you know what you want, well, you don't have to know what you want to do to begin with, but if you've got a sense of what you want to do and are open, well, there's so much that needs to be done. Um, and human rights law is not just about the criminal defence and stopping torture and freedom of expression. It's, it's about food, it's about housing, it's the right to housing, it's about the right to food, it's about increasingly it be about the right to health environment and what we do. There's so much out there that needs to be done and needs um, great human rights experts to come in. So please, if you're remotely interested in this, look into it, try it, go for it. That's very optimistic and, and, and great advice. And, and I hope that people listening to this will be encouraged to, to go into this well, because I totally agree. We need good people in it to carry on the work because of a lot of work out there to do. Mm. Clive, thank you so much for your time and for being so open and sharing with us. And I, and I know that this will be very well received by, by people listening. Yeah, Thank you so much, Vicky, and for doing this for everyone. And good luck to everyone out there. Thanks for listening to The Passion Factor, pursuing a career in human rights. Until the next time.